Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello! This episode, we are joined by Bianca Vong to talk about ethics and the outdoors. Bianca is one of my favorite people, and she also spends most of her free time in the mountains, so we thought she would be a really perfect guest to bring on this episode. So hey, Bianca, how's it going? Hi, I'm so flattered that I'm one of your favorite people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you excited to talk about the outdoors today? I am. Are you happy that it's now almost camping season? um, Or are you sad that it's no longer snowboarding season or both? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a fair bit of overlap between the two. (laughs) Only if you're not a wuss about winter like I am. My bank account is probably happier that it's no longer snowboarding season and now I can sleep in my car. But like, there's something to be excited about for basically every weekend of the year, except for like this dark period in September, October. (laughs) So Bianca, I know that you are one of Kristen's very good friends, but because of the places where Kristen and I live, which are on opposite sides of the continent from each other, I have never met you and I don't know very much about you, except that I have the impression that you're delightful, thanks to Kristen. I am. (laughs) Excellent. Perfect. (laughs) And and I was just wondering, like, you said you sleep in your car. Are you, like, uh, always outside, literally? Or (laughs) So I have a home. (laughs) It's mostly a gear shed at this point. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, so I moved to Edmonton from... uh, Ontario without doing any research whatsoever. I didn't even Google it. I was just like, I have a job offer. I think there's mountains nearby. Let's go. So I do spend most of my weekends out in the mountains doing something. Excellent. Okay, great. That's perfect. Although if you wanted mountains, I don't know why you didn't just go a little further and move to Vancouver. I would have welcomed you. I didn't look at a map. Warmly. (laughs) Bianca moved to Edmonton too in like, I think it was either January or February. And she messaged me about a month afterwards and was like, I think I like it here. I'm like, well, that's great. This is the worst time of the year to be there. (laughs) Yeah, it was January. And going to the mountains from Edmonton is no joke. Like people are like, oh, it's a weekend jaunt. It's not. Bianca's just hardcore. No, it's it's four hours. I've day tripped it. I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be a lot of driving. <laughs> yeah, but it's good thinking time. Like it's good alone carpool karaoke self introspection time. So there's it's also that. Like I like to think that I'm reasonably self aware, and it may be a side effect of having a compulsive need to be outside. <laughs> when you're outside, do you do just about everything? Are you rock climbing? And I know that you're snowboarding and camping, but are you like a mountaineer as well? Um, I do. I rock climb. I snowboard. I dabble in backcountry snowboarding. I tried to learn to ski because that was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but like splitboarding is just a it's 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 not a practical way to do things. I don't do everything. Um I've solemnly swear to never ice climb again in my life. <laughs> um yeah, I do some mountaineering and I do a lot of napping in the sun as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's my kind of outdoors. Yeah. A lot of my activities are really just trying to find a nice place to nap in the sun. (laughs) It's a good way to live. (laughs) Okay, well, now that we've established you as a credible expert, we can carry on. We decided to do an episode on the outdoors right now. Um, 
because we at Pullback have made the mistake a few times of introducing a subject like when it was too late to do something about it. But it's just the beginning of camping season now. So hopefully by talking about ethics in the outdoors now, we'll be sort of priming people for their summer vacations as we're beginning to be freed from COVID lockdowns and people can maybe go camping this summer. You got to knock wood when you say that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So we're going to start by talking a little bit about like when you're outdoors, how do you be a responsible and ethical person? Then we'll talk a little bit about what kind of considerations you should take when you're looking at ethical outdoor gear, although there's a lot of different kinds of ethical outdoor gear, so we don't take a comprehensive approach to that. And then after that, we'll talk a little bit about access to the outdoors and sort of what are barriers to access and what are some ways to overcome them. All right, so let's start with how to be responsible outdoors. Um, Leave No Trace is a principle or a set of principles that is often sort of touted as the like rule book for what to do when you're going hiking or camping or going in backcountry. And there are seven different principles. And basically what I want to do is go through each of them and just have Bianca explain them to us. <laughs> that works for me because I'll be honest, I'm a terrible person. And you were like, well, we're going to talk about Leave No Trace. And I Googled it and I was like, wow, I have never heard of this. But I was happy to see that I was pretty much following it already. Phew. <laughs> I wasn't briefed on this, so that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great. So the first principle is plan ahead and prepare. Um, so... What I had generally read on this was like, you want to plan ahead so you don't make mistakes and have a real bad time. Uh, What are some things you should prepare for if you're going on an outdoor trip? The weather. You should always look at the weather. Um, And even if you think you're just going for a day trip, you should be you should have like the essentials in case you have an unplanned overnight. I mean, that's happened to me before where I went rock climbing for a day and ended up sleeping under a boulder. Um, but we had extra layers. We had a rope that we could like put under us as a barrier between us and the ground so that we weren't cold. We had all the other 10 essentials that we will get into. Actually, I didn't have a knife. I never have a knife. <laughs> um, also, like letting people, having having a way to communicate where you are, especially if you're going on a longer trip. So like making sure somebody knows where you're going, what your itinerary is, when you expect to be back. You may want to leave a note on the dashboard of your car in case, you know, you're there longer than uh, um, planned. So search and rescue knows where to look. I usually carry a um, satellite, like an emergency beacon when I'm planning to be backcountry. It's a little beacon that just sends a help signal. Mine is a two-way communicator so that I can customize the message just to be more specific. Like there's some that are, there's some that are like just, very basic and it'll send a message that's just like help 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 whereas mine will send you can actually like it bluetooth to my phone and i can like write a little text of like help someone fell in a crevasse and they're dying we have like half an hour or you can be like i'm back country and I, I or i'm just on a remote highway my car broke down please come eventually but i'm not dying and then you can also find out you know when someone gets that message and responds uh, which is really reassuring i bought that after the unplanned overnight sleeping under a boulder. Oh, so the one time you needed it. (laughs) I didn't need it because I was very sure I wasn't going to die. But I realized that I had the very basic one at the time. And I realized that if I did need it, um, there's no way of knowing if help is actually on the way. 
And that extra peace of mind was worth the extra money to me. That's really legitimate. Love it. All right. Principle two is travel and camp on durable surfaces. So what I read under this is like, stay on the trail when you're hiking. If you're in a campground, like actually set up at the campground, don't like go rogue. And then there was a bunch of stuff for how to choose the right campsite if you're backcountry camping. Maybe, Bianca, you can explain some like do's and don'ts for that. Yeah, I mean, like in when you're at a campground, campground like um like a city, like a car camping front country campground, you do want to make sure that you're on the actual campsite that you have, and like you're not just camping in a like finding a spot and pulling up. Even when you're backcountry in the national parks and the provincial parks around around Alberta and BC, there will be tent pads. Like there is a little square that you, when you show up to the campground, there's a little square. It's like a dirt pad or a wooden platform and it's got a number and you're supposed to set your tent up there. It's not okay to just throw your tent down on the ground somewhere else because it's too crowded over there and you want to get away from people. Um, and the idea is to minimize the impact on the flora. Right. Yeah, this is something that um, when I was reading, it sounds like there are kind of two approaches depending on how much traffic they're expecting. So if you're in like a low traffic area, you spread out the environmental impact. But if you're in a high impact area, they designate spots so that like you're only fucking up like the vegetation on a trail rather than everywhere. Is that is that generally right? Yeah, exactly. Like if you're going to a, a backcountry campground, usually within within Alberta parks and the national parks, they are very structured and there are designated sites and you should just keep to those sites. And what about, um, I had read something about um, staying like 200 feet away from waterways when you're camping. Um, what, what's that about? Oh, so you don't contaminate um, the water sources. So you want to make sure that when you're you're using the facilities, like when the facilitator is outside, um, you want to make sure that you're not doing that close to a water source because then you're potentially contaminating it. So you want to stay 200 feet or like, I don't know how many steps that is, like 70-ish steps away. Um, and also for things like cleaning, um, disposing of water after you've cooked from it, you want to make sure that that isn't like that wastewater isn't contaminating the water source as well. So uh, what I've always been taught is with things like brushing your teeth, um, do it away from the water source, but also try to like spray in an arc. <laughs> uh, and same thing with um, disposing of gray water. So like water after you've done your dishes or from cooking, you want to kind of fling it in an arc instead of just pouring it into one, one localized area. And you want to make sure you're doing that far away from the water source. That actually kind of gets us into the next principle, which is dispose of waste properly. So we talked just a, just now a little bit about water and waste and waste like that but what about um i guess litter is bad is there anything more complicated than that <laughs> <laughs> litter is bad um i think one of the parts of leave no trace is also like it's not just leave no trace but also try to leave leave it better than you found it so if you see other people's litters please pick it up another thing that i also see is um Food waste is still litter. So apple cores and banana peels and orange peels, people seem to think that that's biodegradable. So it's fine to just fling it and it's not litter. It totally is litter. Please stop doing it. (laughs) (laughs) 
It attracts animals to, to human traffic areas. It's a um, non-native plant material. It does actually take a while to decompose. Please just pack it out. Same thing with toilet paper. You're supposed to pack that out as well. Get a separate Ziploc bag or something. Yeah. And what about pooping? How do you poop in the woods properly? <laughs> <laughs> you dig a hole. You dig a hole. You dig a hole. <laughs> okay. What about leave what you find? Uh, I guess that seems pretty straightforward to me, but what kinds of things do you not want to move that people commonly move? Tons of people like steal plants to put in their pots at home or something like that. I think I read about that once. I've never thought to do it myself, but is that like a super common thing? I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I can see people doing that because like people do a lot of things <laughs> that you're just kind of like, why? <laughs> um, the th one thing that comes to mind is um, people picking up deadfall for fires that that's okay that that's fine because um it's discouraged to bring in your own firewood because you could be spreading i'm not sure if it's it concerns over like a new invasive plant species or if it's concerned about mountain pine beetle here uh but it is discouraged and campsites will usually provide firewood so that you don't feel the need to bring your own but at the same time picking up deadfall around the campsite is also not ideal so like the dead leaves and shit that are just around ideally you don't want to be using that well it's also like a really nice way to support the park is just paying that five dollars for the wood you know yeah. yeah for sure a lot of times the firewood is free so that it's a further incentive to not bring your own yeah <laughs> people require very little incentive to do shitty stuff so <laughs> Well, especially if they don't know it's shitty. Like, I would never have thought about the the True. the firewood thing. That's not a thing that I would have considered. And it's not um, necessarily evil. So I get it. I get it. This is, this is all about educating. <laughs> the thing about not picking up deadfall has to do with um, wildfire management. Like, historically, we've been really good at wildfire suppression in the national parks. And as a result of that, um, we now have too much fuel that would have burned in like the normal cycle that is now accumulated and what wildfires when they happen will be much bigger and more devastating. One can only hope that they have a plan for how to manage that through controlled burns. I don't really know what that plan is, but they told us not to use the deadfall. I'm not going to use the deadfall. Um, the other thing, I guess, picking flowers and um, like mushrooms and like foraging and stuff I think there are some areas where you can forage, but you need to make sure that you're in one of those zones. Is that true? I don't know. Well, you've never foraged a meal, Bianca? I haven't. <laughs> I feel like I would really hurt myself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing a lot of people, when they forage, they're looking for mushrooms. And I, my guess is that there's a lot of ways to kill yourself by picking random mushrooms. <laughs> Maybe some safe advice would be to like contact your local like mushroom foragers club and maybe join them. Yeah, the in Edmonton there's the River Valley Free School I think that does uh they do have a class on foraging that's always sold out like or fully booked as soon as it's announced, but they teach you how to forage in the Edmonton River Valley and apparently there's a lot of wild asparagus in there. I love Ooh. that that's a class that sells out all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I really want to take that class now. 
but apparently I can't, so. <laughs> Maybe they do it Zoom style now so anyone can join. Ooh, love it. <laughs> um, the next principle is to minimize campfire impacts. And I think a lot of this was like, don't start a wildfire. Uh, do you have any pro <laughs> tips for that, Bianca? <laughs> What's a safe way to start a fire? <laughs> don't start wildfires. <laughs> yeah, like what should people think about... Um, are there certain types times of year when you might not want to start a fire and stuff like that? Yeah, the whole damn year, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, but there are times when you can safely start a campfire, right? Yes. Um, when there's a fire ban or a fire advisory, please respect those. Uh, I, in Canada, I believe three quarters, I don't know if it's in Canada or in Alberta, about three quarters of all wildfires are human started. And that's not all gender reveal parties gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's... A lot of it is ATVs. Oh, weird. I don't think it's that weird because, like, the it just, like if you have brush and stuff that gets caught, um, it can it can ignite really easily, and you won't really know about it until like you're past the ignition. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Gives me just one more reason to hate those ATVers <laughs> when I'm hiking. <laughs> yeah. Um, last spring when COVID, everything was shut down because of COVID and like the national parks were closed um, and there was a fire ban that, that no one was allowed to use an ATV except for parks employees and Section 35 rights holders. It was a really quiet wildfire season. Huh. Maybe we shouldn't allow ATVs all the time. <laughs> I'm personally and professionally for it. <laughs> One thing that I had read that you should think about, of course, the fire danger level. So pay attention to those like, usually it'll be like a colored meter that you'll see when you go into a, an area, right? Yeah. And then also to, to think about like, how much fire are you burning? How large is the fire? Um, and just to make sure to burn it out completely and to put it out with water. Yeah, make sure that your fire pit is well lined with stones or other like non-flammable things or if you're burning it in a ring um, when you put a fire out yeah for sure make sure that it's burned out completely and you pour you stir and then you pour again um all right the next principle is to respect wildlife um so observing them at a distance uh, storing your food securely and keeping garbage and food scraps away Anyone want to share some egregious stories of people feeding animals? <laughs> Stop feeding animals. It kills them. Yeah, if it doesn't poison them directly, then it can tame them in a way that could get them killed. Or it can make uh, predators reliant on human beings, which could result in an attack. And then the creature might be euthanized. So lots and lots of reasons. Also, like it turns birds into pests. Nobody likes having seagulls hang around. <laughs> it's true. It isn't food, so people don't necessarily think of it when they're putting their stuff away, but toiletries smell like food to animals. So your toothbrush, your deodorant should be treated the same way as food and kept in very safe containers away from the campsite. Ooh, interesting. Good point. Yeah, it's a good pro tip for sure. Um, all right. The last one is be considerate of other visitors. <laughs> what are some things to think about there? While I think about this and try not to be angry, do you have any thoughts, Kristen, to start with? Or Kyla? Well, I imagined music was going to be the first thing you told us about. <laughs> yes. It's a special circle of hell for people who bring Bluetooth speakers outdoors. There's just, there's no reason. There's no reason. Why would you do this? 
<laughs> no one wants to hear your music. Headphones exist. If you're worried about bears, talk to your friends, talk to yourself, get some singing practice, do anything except Bluetooth speakers. I hate you. <laughs> okay, noted. I won't pack my Bluetooth speaker on my next <laughs> camping trip. <laughs> Don't be that guy, Kyla. Okay. It's my number one pet peeve. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> Noise is disruptive to your neighbors and it's upsetting for the local wildlife. So even though I have definitely been guilty of that, I have learned. Thank you, Bianca, for your gentle encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about this. Like litter I can pick up, but if you have a Bluetooth speaker, it's frowned upon to grab it and throw it. <laughs> Yeah, the other things I had under be considerate of other visitors is um, if you have pets, keep them under control while they're there. And also um, leave gates as you found them. So if they were closed when you got there, shut them. Yeah. Um, don't touch other people's stuff. Key. That's a good rule everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was on a canoe trip. And at one point we stopped at a um, like a tourist stop to use the outhouse there. And when we came back, there were tourists sitting in our canoe, taking pictures, pretending it was theirs. Yeah. And it was was a nice canoe. There were thousands of dollars of camping gear in it. They were just sitting in it, scraping it along the bottom of the beach, like on the rock. And I was just (laughs) so outraged that someone would do this. And then they they had the temerity to get upset at us when we asked them to get out. What? I'm very upset about the photo op being ruined. Oh my gosh. It's been four years or something like that. I'm still not over it. <laughs> but just like circling back to like being considered other people, I think that that ties back to the very first principle of um, trip planning. I think that one thing that people don't take into consideration is um, if something does happen to them, the impact that it can have on the search and rescue who has to go find you. Especially in the age of COVID, there's been a lot more search and rescue calls this past, like this past summer than there were like in the seasons before. And it's, it puts the, um, the search and rescue people at risk of exposure to you, but it's also impossible to socially distance in a helicopter and making sure, just making sure that um, your objective for your trip isn't, outside of like isn't out of your league that you know that you're able to do it within the realm of your experience and ability um so not putting yourself doing your best to not put yourself in a position where you might need a rescue and then with the search and rescue thing there's also been um instances in the alberta mountain parks with um people who summit a mountain, they're really excited, and especially on the more popular mountains, um, and they decide to throw things off, like rocks off the cliff to, Uh. I don't know, get their joy out, not realizing that there may be rock climbers, there are other hikers below. Um, So there have been some deaths because of trauma from overhead hazard. Wow. Wow. Here I have been feeling called out this whole episode, but I can safely say I've never done that. (laughs) No, that's fair. That's fair. I'm, uh, I try to be considerate, but I don't know everything. And that's why it's lovely to have these conversations. But I have luckily not thrown rocks on anybody's heads. So that's great. <laughs> that's a thing that I will think about the next time I'm at the top of a summit so that I'm never tempted to. Thank you for this discussion. 
Well, and also this is something that we'll probably talk about more at the end of the episode, but one of the big barriers to the outdoors is like, um, there's so much, um, skills and knowledge that you need to have. Um, and so there's this kind of tension, right? Where people need to know the rules in order to be safe and to be considerate, but also you want to increase access to the outdoors. And, um, those aren't necessarily intention, but it does mean that like there, people need to really either take the effort to learn themselves or there needs to be better communication or both. Mm-hmm. It's a really tricky balance. So, well, just a little teaser for what's going to happen in our in the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> but let's move on to talk a little bit about outdoor gear first. So I thought we could sort of open by talking about 10 items that are sort of seen as the essentials for if you're going um, hiking or camping. Then for the challenge today, Kyla and I each sort of looked at this list of things and we're like, what would we need and how can we get it responsibly? So we'll talk a little bit about that. The first uh, item is navigation. And this they're all kind of sneaky because they're not really one item. They're all like categories of items. <laughs> but what do you need to navigate, Bianca? <laughs> I mean, at a minimum, you need a map. Um, I know a lot of people will be like, oh, I have a GPS on my phone. And I guess that works. Um, But what if your phone dies? Also, I was I don't know if I was reading an article or talking to somebody, but there's a lot of people in the generation below us who have literally never not had a phone work because they've always lived in a city. So it's in like they've just never thought about not having service. So if somebody's going to the outdoors for the first time with their phone and they think, oh, Google Maps knows everything. It's like, well, Google Maps actually hasn't mapped the area that you're going to. And also there's no service on top of that mountain. And it's something that maybe people might forget that your phone doesn't always work. So if you are going to rely on it, make sure you have a battery backup. And also you might want to download a map offline. Yeah. I read a really good article some time back that was talking about um, this trip that took place in the Alps, in the Italian Alps. And spoiler alert, the whole party died. Okay. Very sad. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I mean, the article was basically talking about what went wrong and how, like, what shouldn't have happened. And it was this um, group that had hired a professional mountain guide who was Italian. They hired him because he was a native Italian speaker. And one of the things that went wrong was that it was a backcountry ski trip. They were going from hut to hut to hut. And when they were going from one hut to another, there was a um, an unexpected snowstorm blew in. And one of the things that happened was the guide had been relying solely off the GPS of his phone, which died and left them without navigation, which blows my mind that that would happen on a professionally guided trip but it and then the rest of the article is about um how in a group setting um on a trip even if there's one person who should who should like be the leader like is the authority figure is the knowledgeable person is the professional every member of the group should still feel empowered to speak up if they don't feel comfortable with something because if that had happened and they hadn't just been like oh i just will just trust the guide he must know what he's doing that trip might have turned out differently Yeah, if one person had brought a map? Yeah, or had something else or just said, like, I'm not really, I don't, I'm I'm not comfortable um, making the trip to the next hut in these conditions. I'm not, I don't want to go. I don't think we should go. Uh, But that's kind of straying away from the navigation piece. 
No, it's a really good reminder, though. Like, yeah, um, your phone might die, um, as Kyla pointed out. Like, I mean, it's not just on mountains. There are a lot of areas of, like, rural and remote Canada that don't have cell coverage at all, so. Mm -hmm. And it is a principle of um, being outdoors in the backcountry that um, if one person in the group voices, uh, says, like, I'm not doing this, I'm not comfortable doing this, this, then the whole group stops. Like, no one should feel pressured into an objective or going somewhere where they don't feel comfortable, which I think is just good life advice. <laughs> yeah, it's a good life rule. <laughs> yeah, but for navigation, um, I like to bring a physical paper map and compass. I, I mostly just like having that skill. There's no real practical reason for it. And then I have a GPS on my phone, which is, I guess, usually more useful. I was gifted my first compass recently. Oh, I'm so excited for you. Yeah, except it's not really real. I mean, like, it's a compass that works, but it's also a compass that's part of a flashlight that's also a flask that has uh, collapsible shot glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I also would like to take this opportunity to roast Kristen, who has the worst sense of direction of anyone I've ever met. <laughs> I don't know, Bianca, you've never been in a car with me behind the wheel. I've been in a car with Kristen where we got off the highway to get to like get gas or something. And Kristen can't find her way back onto the highway, even though it's across the street and we can see it. Kristen, do you remember that time in Newfoundland when I was driving and you were like, Kyla, you're driving on the left side of the road. You know, we're in Canada, right? And I was like, yep. And then I like drifted back over to the right side of the road. <laughs> I thought you were talking about at first. I do remember that. I thought you were talking about the time when we were in Newfoundland and we followed Google Maps to this thing that I'm <laughs> fairly certain was not a road. And there was just grass on all sides, like high grass up to the middle of the car. We thought we were going to wreck the rental car. We're like, they're not taking this back. And I was like, what's the deductible on the damages? <laughs> One time we were leaving a, I was leaving a campsite with Kristen and I was driving and she was navigating. So first mistake, <laughs> and GPS, we were at a T junction. The GPS says head west. And I didn't know if west was left or right. So I asked Kristen to figure it out. And then I hand her my compass and she doesn't, she's like, I don't know how to use this. <laughs> what do I do with this? Look. I've been so bad at navigating my whole life that it has never been a responsibility that anyone's given me. And when they have, they've learned better for the future. So I just have never needed these skills. <laughs> now that I have a compass on my flask light, well, maybe I'll use it more. <laughs> All right. So the navigation, make sure you have like um, some redundancy built in there. Um, don't just rely on your phone. All right, the second one is illumination. What should what should people have for illumination, Bianca? <laughs> Always bring a headlamp. Don't rely on your phone. It could die. <laughs> you see, with this thing that's got the compass, it also has a flashlight, so I'm set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I recently bought, um, I don't know, I'm so scared of earthquakes, you guys. This is a little bit off topic. But <laughs> since, <laughs> since moving to Vancouver, I'm like terrified I'm going to be stuck in like uh, a once in a lifetime earthquake that we're like overdue for. Oh, the big one? Yeah, you know. So <laughs> I've never been in an earthquake. I've been all over the world. I spent like 
a bunch of time in Japan and I was like, this is it. I'm going to feel an earthquake. I've never felt one. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm like ready for it. There's an episode in like season one of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where Will Smith like feels an earthquake for the first time and he loses his shit. And I was like, that will be me. I will be the one under the table. In preparing for the big one, I built like a ready kit bag that you can just grab and go in an emergency. And in that ready kit, I bought like a, a hand crank radio that you can crank and it will charge it up. Uh, it also has like a solar panel on it and it charges your phone and it's a flashlight. So I'm pretty much set. That's amazing. Nice. <laughs> I also, I love that you have a go bag. Everyone should have one. I don't have one. <laughs> I know I've literally given workshops on how to set up your go kit and I don't have one. I feel so ashamed. <laughs> But all right, illumination, headlamp, or flashlight, and also extra batteries is something that I saw. Or a crank radio, you guys. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I like headlamps more than flashlights just because you have your hands free. That's legit. It's better for going to the bathroom at night. Yeah, it's true. I always have like an extra headlamp shoved everywhere in case so that I will never forget one. And I always forget one, <laughs> which is why I have six headlamps. When we did that West Coast tree trip and you were insisting on headlamps, I was like, I think a flashlight would be fine. And within the first day, I was like, yeah, okay, headlamp. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to be peeing in the dark with a flashlight. It's <laughs> so much harder. <laughs> All right. The third thing on this list is sun protection. Maybe we won't spend that much time on this, but sunglasses, sun protective clothing, and sunscreen. Anything either of you want to add on that? So for our challenge, we were supposed to look at the list and kind of come up with ethical ways to get stuff that we don't have. And I don't currently have any sun clothing, sunglasses, or sunscreen. So, whoa. I mean, I guess you never see the sun in Vancouver. <laughs> That's shade. That's some shade that you're casting. So much shade. It's almost like you're standing here with me in Vancouver. <laughs> So the only thing I, I was going to buy this year was sunscreen. So I was looking at like different sunscreens and ethical consumer was like, oh, you should probably buy organic and um, with mostly uh, ingredients that won't harm the environment. And then they recommended two brands that are British and cost $50 each. So I was like, hmm, I wonder if my waste-free grocery store has a good alternative. And they do. Shout out to Nada here in Vancouver. They have uh, an, a, an SPF 30 sunscreen that comes in a tin. It's water resistant uh, and it's made from organic oils and butters. It's reef safe. It's got the leaping bunny. So I'm, I just placed that in my uh, cart for my next order from them. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I'm not very good at the sun protection side of things because I grew up with a parent who just does not believe in sunscreen. I don't know if he's ever used sunscreen in his life. Um, we're from the equator. So I've, I've started buying the spray on sunscreen so that I don't get my hands greasy because that's been my main distaste for sunscreen. So I find that like since I've started using that, and since I started getting more tattoos, I am a lot better about actually using sunscreen. Every time I learn something new about you, Bianca, you sound cooler. Now I'm picturing you just like covered in tats and like wearing oh. like these like fancy hiking shorts and like a nice little cap. <laughs> Bianca's so much cooler than me. <laughs> Dubious. I don't believe that. Um, I don't wear hiking shorts because ticks are a thing. And... 
my tattoos are like plants that make me happy to look at and then dinosaurs and they're all the cutest and I love them nice all right uh the next thing is a first aid kit do you have a pretty intensive first aid kit when you go out Bianca I have a first aid kit that I bought at Mac that fits in the bottom of my pack pretty conveniently. Uh, it could probably be better. Um, I think you really need, like, you need some bandages, you need some splints, you need some moleskin, uh, mole um, some aspirin, maybe some allergy meds. And I also keep waterproof matches in my first aid kit just because you should have some way of starting a fire and that way I won't lose them. Hey, you're previewing number six, Bianca. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just go mentally going through what's in my first aid kit. That's legit. That's legit. All right. So number five, um, now that we know what number six is, but we'll go back to it. Number five <laughs> is tools. So a knife and a re- like a repair kit for stuff. What What are people repairing? Is it like tent repair kits or? Stuff? stuff and things okay so this is this is the thing that's this is my um essential item of shame in that i do not own a knife and i know that's bad and i should (laughs) but i don't i have a very shitty multi-tool somewhere that was given to me as a gift and that has been lost somewhere in my apartment i carry a repair kit um when i'm backcountry skiing but what that is, is really just like a little multi-tool screwdriver in case like um, my bindings break and then a roll of hockey tape in case I need to strap something back together. Um, oh, I like to have some cord. I mean, I, I rock climb, so I kind of just have cord floating around everywhere all the time anyways. But it's nice to have something to tie shit together with. Yes, for sure. All right. Stuff to start a fire with. What should you have? Waterproof matches. Fair. I guess you, if you have waterproof matches, you probably don't need a lighter, but is that an either or thing or should you have backup matches either way? I think the most important thing is that you have one or the other. Um, I often will have both just because like a lighter is easier to start a fire with, um, but I've never tried to light a fire with a lighter in like damp conditions. I have friends who will carry a flint because I, I don't know. I mean, I carry a map and a compass. <laughs> do it old school fair enough all right uh emergency shelter was the next uh was the next thing so you had talked about that night when you ended up having to spend the evening uh and we weren't expecting it what were some of the things that you brought that helped you and like what should people bring in case they get in a situation like that Um, I have an emergency bivy that I keep in my pack when I go out. So it's basically just like a sleeping bag made of lightweight aluminum foil. Um, And it's just like it's reflective. So it traps heat in. We had a rope at the time, I think I mentioned. So we could keep ourselves off the ground for extra insulation. Um, You should always have extra layers. It's just a good idea to have a few basic things in case you do have an unplanned overnight. Perfect. Uh, and then the next three were all um, pretty simple. So food, bring more than you need. Water, bring more than you need. And clothing, bring more than you need. All right, Kyla, what did you do for your challenge? I'm very curious. Well, I placed an order for <laughs> that sunscreen. And then I looked at getting a headlamp because I don't have yeah. one. 
Yeah. So I figured I could probably find something like that from like Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, or I could thrift it directly. Although I don't know how often you find gear, like good gear in, in like thrift stores. So I figured- Oh man, I have I have exactly the answer to what you're looking for for in a few minutes in this podcast. <laughs> oh, well, that's the same answer. Well, good, because I feel like it'll be the same solution for, because I don't have a compass or any way to like tell direction if my phone dies like we like when I said earlier that I feel like this podcast is directed at me I was like I feel called out (laughs) I didn't speak up every time you guys shamed me but it was a lot (laughs) so I don't have a compass and I figured it would be the same like I was like oh Facebook marketplace or Craigslist like I don't know where I would get a used one like certainly I don't need a new compass as long as it still points north I think I'm okay so (laughs) What's the solution, Kristen? Help me. Um, We'll talk about this in a little bit for the strategies. I was just going to say that there are actually gear specific, um, like outdoor equipment specific secondhand marketplaces. So that was what I did for my challenge. Um, I don't have a headlamp still because I've only ever used Bianca's. (laughs) (laughs) What? I know. Uh (laughs) I owe you a birthday present. I'm getting you a headlamp. Hell yeah. Okay, well, then maybe I won't go on to, we'll talk about this later, but Mech has a swap um, site that you can you can look at. And I was looking at a nice headlamp there for $20. So, so um, let's talk about strategies for um, buying outdoor gear ethically. I came up with a few principles. To be honest, like it's the same kinds of principles that you would apply when you're buying anything else, really. Um, If you're 57 episodes into this podcast, you probably already have a lot of the general skill sets, but... For our first-time listeners, (laughs) for those those just tuning in now... For (laughs) first-time listeners, we'll go over them, but but also I tried to look up some, like, outdoor-specific places that people could find. So the first uh, principle is try to reduce what you're consuming. So that doesn't mean like skip out on essential items when you're camping. Don't do that. Um, But think about like the way in which you're going to acquire what you need. Um, And it may not necessarily be buying and it may not necessarily be buying new, even if you have to buy. So if you don't camp very often, um, you're probably looking at buying new gear to use like once or maybe a few times. And that's not necessarily the best idea. Ooh, or borrow from your family like I do. (laughs) Kyla, you're jumping ahead in the principles. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So the first one is just think about what you need. So how often are you going to use it? Is there something you already have that could accomplish the same objective? Um, And if there is, then maybe you don't need to buy anything new at all. I would say also, if you're going to be buying something, I believe in like buy it right or buy it twice for outdoors gear. Like I, I know so many people and I am also one of those people that has like duplicates or triplicates of things because you bought you wanted to get into something you just bought the cheapest thing like piece of gear to start out and then realize like oh actually I want to upgrade and then now I have gear sitting around that's not being used and I've made an extra purchase perfect yeah so we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to what happens if you are buying new you can also apply that I think um if you're buying secondhand we'll talk about that too The next principle is to rent or borrow where you can. So if it's something that you're not going to use a lot, only maybe going to use it once or twice, try to look for solutions to rent or borrow. So first, if you know somebody who camps a lot, they probably have extra gear and they would probably be happy to lend it to you as long as you're like 
responsible with it. Also, um, for items that you will not use that often and you can't borrow, um, think about renting. So there are lots of different rental options, um, oftentimes sort of around um, communities where there's lots of um, campsites and things like that. There will be specific um, rental shops. Um, I've linked to a directory on our research notes. You can look there for anything in Canada. Uh, And also I found, um, so I... I've never used this um, organization before, but it's kind of a cool idea. There's a group called Rent-A-Tent Canada that like they'll rent um, entire packages of like all the essentials you need for like a car camping trip. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. Yeah. And that makes it so much less intimidating because it's just like, here's everything you need. Yeah. I Yeah, I love it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The next uh, principle is to buy secondhand where you can. So there are a few outdoor companies, first of all, that will allow you to, um, so they'll let you send in used items, but they also often will resell them on their own websites. A couple of the ones that I found, I know Patagonia um, does end of use stuff. Um, North Face has an entire renewed section of their website where they will take used items that they've repaired and they'll resell them. And I want to highlight, they also have this remade collection that I think is super cool. Um, It's basically like they'll take in stuff that like, let's say you're sending in a coat that was damaged. They have like designers that come in and will like make a cool new version of it using um, like upcycled materials. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it's so cool. I think it's awesome. And then uh, there's also REI Co-op. They'll they'll let you trade in used gear, and you can look at their used their good and used section, so you can shop that same way. I'm sure there are other brands that I haven't brought up, but those are just a few examples to get you started. Arcteryx launched a program like that, I think, this year, where you can trade in your gently used gear for a discount on new stuff. Yeah, it's super cool. It, se- it seems like um, outdoor companies are kind of all moving in that direction. I would imagine just because the kinds of people that are drawn to working at outdoor companies care about um, sustainability, but probably also because their customers care. Um, I'll highlight two more. So um, Mech, uh, this is sort of more like a marketplace. Mech will allow people to post their used items um, that for resale, um, and they kind of handle the financial transaction, but... Unlike North Face, North Face will take an item only that um, they sold um, and they'll fix it and like they take responsibility for the quality of the resale. With Mech, it's more sort of like Facebook Marketplace or something where you can post the gear, but Mech doesn't take responsibility for like um, the quality of the item. So it might be, you know, if it's damaged or something like that, um, they're not necessarily directly involved in that. So it is a little bit more sort of like Poshmark or um, or Facebook Marketplace, but it is specific to outdoors equipment. So um, if you're looking for something, you can find it there. And I was looking, on, and there's so much stuff on there. You can find everything from climbing shoes and gear packs to bikes and tents. And I actually even saw a canoe on there. So <laughs> there pretty much everything there. Yeah. And in the before time, uh, Mech would also host a physical gear swap. I think once or twice a year where um, they would sell off like old rentals and have clearance things, but you could also like have a table there and try to sell off your own, your own things there. Yeah. And I know um, my old climbing gym in Toronto used to do that every once in a while too. And I would imagine it's fairly common um, 
other places as well. So look out informally for that. And then the last thing that I found in terms of like secondhand outdoor gear is um, a website called Gear Trade. They seem to be US specific, but they do ship to Canada. Um, And it specifically is like, it's like the Poshmark for outdoor gear. It's like a huge site that only does um, like people sell their used um, outdoor equipment and people buy it. Here in Alberta, Facebook is a pretty big marketplace for um, used outdoors gears. Like there's a few um, selling groups on Facebook that I'm part of, and they're usually called like something gear loft. So like Calgary gear loft or YEG gear gear loft or Bow Valley gear loft. And it's specifically for for selling outdoors gear. And they're quite active here. There's also um, in Calgary and Canmore, because of the sheer mountain of sheer quantity of people who like mountain stuff, there's um, like mountain gear consignment shops that are like, like any other consignment shop, but like specifically for outdoors gear. And they're fun. I love that. We'll have to go next time we're in Canmore. <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> All right. So um, the next one is, so, you know, there are lots of secondhand options, but if you are going to buy new, um, First of all, the principle that Bianca already brought up is a good one. Um, Look for durability because you don't want to just have to sort of be replacing a shitty version with a good version. So if you are genuinely going to buy for keeps, um, look for durability. Um, And as well, look for ethical superstars or leading big companies. So um, there you can look at things like if it's for clothing, good on you has a rating system. Otherwise, um, Actually, I think the rating systems are mostly geared toward companies that sell outdoor clothing. But, you know, try to look up, see if the company that you're buying from, is it a co-op? Are they paying their fair share of taxes? Um, Things like that. And then uh, the last principle, uh, which applies, I think, in most cases when you're consuming anything, is just plan ahead for what the end use of the product is. Um, As we've mentioned before, there are some outdoor companies that will take responsibility for um, how to responsibly dispose of the product when it's done. So if you can buy from a company like that, that's great. If not, just think about like when I'm done with this, um, you know, am I going to be able to resell it somewhere? What's my plan for that? Okay, so let's talk about accessibility and the outdoors. Um, I feel like the outdoors can be pretty intimidating for people sometimes. We talked, um, I mean, even when we were going over the rules for Leave No Trace, like, I found myself overwhelmed as I was reading sometimes. It's like, when you're in a desert environment, dig this kind of hole and do this thing with your poo. And if you're in this environment, (laughs) do this thing. Um, And that's not even getting into, like, different bear survival strategies. So... (laughs) I feel like it could be a good theme to talk about um, what are the different ways that people experience barriers to the outdoors and how do we get around those? So I guess I'll start by asking, when it comes to like experiencing the outdoors, what do you think are some of the biggest things that prevent people from being able to access the outdoors? I think there's an idea of like what an outdoorsy person is. And if you don't see yourself as fitting that kind of like archetype of the outdoorsy person, it can be hard to like imagine yourself doing outdoorsy things or like seeing that as a space that's available and accessible to you and that you have a right to belong in. 
So, I mean, I think that's something I've thought about a lot because I am a visible minority and I am a woman and I spend a lot of time outdoors in white and male dominated spaces. Um, And so, yeah, that's an axis of accessibility that I think about a lot because it has been intimidating for me getting started in this, in the sports that I do um, in doing outdoors things, getting into the backcountry and feeling like I have feeling confident in myself and feeling like I have a right to be there. And notwithstanding the piece about being a minority woman um, out of that subset of the population, I think I'm exceptionally well positioned to be like the one of the people who's likely to go outdoors and do those things. Like I have a phys ed degree. Um, oh, that's right. I forgot I, you had a phys ed degree. <laughs> i always remember that you have an english degree but i always forget you have two (laughs) well three i guess if you count our masters also (laughs) yeah and i i did sports in high school um but it still was super intimidating the first time that i went on an alpine club trip in alberta and like if it's if it's terrifying for me then like someone who has all this like background and qualifications and experience, then it must like, I can absolutely see that being a barrier to access to somebody who doesn't have that same background and who's like, maybe would like to try, but just feels like, Oh no, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I don't think I, I don't know how to be safe. I don't want people to laugh at me. I think just making the concept of the outdoors accessible for people um, is something that there still needs to be a lot of work done towards the very first Alpine club trip that I went on was, um, it was an overnight camping trip. We were learning crevasse rescue and glacier travel. And there was one other, um, one other non-white woman on the trip who was, uh, there with, um, someone who, who has become my friend. She has become my friend. And I remember like that trip, the very first morning going into the breakfast tent and like the cook shelter and like making my own breakfast and sitting there by myself. And like, I didn't know anyone. I was like, I don't know what everyone else brought. Did I bring the right stuff? Was like, should I have packed better? I don't know what I'm doing. Do people know that I don't know what I'm doing? And later on this, uh, this girl told me, she was like, when you like on that very first trip that we went on together, like when you just came into the cook shelter in the morning and you were just like started making your own food and you were so self-sufficient. I just thought like, Oh my God, she's so cool. I want to be like her. And that was not how I felt in the moment. Like, and that, like, <laughs> that discrepancy between how I felt and what like her perception was, I don't know where I was going with this, but like, it was, it was a really jarring moment for me. Um, and I think like that was when I started to feel like, Oh, maybe like, you know, people do think I belong here. Yeah. And maybe everybody feels this way a little. <laughs> mm-hmm. But also like seeing other um, other women, other minorities out and doing things and can kind of open that door to make it feel like, oh, I also should be here. I can be here. Yeah, for sure. I was reading um, the Sierra Club had a, an interesting article um, where they're talking about like how parks and outdoor organizations can make um, the outdoors more inclusive. And one of the things that like, it seemed so simple, but like so important is just like how you mark trails and things like that. 
Calling something moderate or strenuous communicates things in a way less judgmental way and a way more informative way than saying something's for beginners or not, you know? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I had never thought about it before, but it's so true. (laughs) Like, what what constitutes a beginner? (laughs) And also, why am I being shamed for being on the (laughs) side? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, what if I'm just tired? I don't want to do a big (laughs) hike, even though I could. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But also like other suggestions that they had were things like um, reduce barriers to entry in terms of equipment and skills. Um, Camping equipment is so expensive. So huge barrier. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different kinds of camping equipment. And like, I I love gear now and I love nerding out on gear and I love researching (laughs) gear before I buy it. It's a hobby. but when you're just starting out and it's you don't really have um, a grounding in what you need and what all the different types of things are, it, it can be so intimidating and overwhelming. Of like, what do I need? Am I going to die if I don't buy the right stove? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, I feel like I just make you buy anytime. Anytime I'm getting something, I'm like, Bianca, pick it out for me. <laughs> and it's so much fun for me. <laughs> it's like shopping, but with your money. exactly (laughs) yeah I'm curious um so you mentioned that sort of first trip but was that your first like introduction to the outdoors or did were you also in like guides or something growing up um (laughs) I was I was in brownies as a very small child but um Kristen knows my family, so she'll find this especially funny. Um, Once I (laughs) aged out of brownies, um, my mom didn't want me to go to Girl Guides because I had finally just grown into my brownies uniform and she didn't want to buy a new one. (laughs) 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 So I didn't go to Girl Guides. That's super classic, your mom. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I don't know. I feel like um, there are sort of simple things that organizations can do to help um, but it's also in like the pricing the government set out too, isn't it? What do you mean? Well, like um, how much park pass costs and, you know, things like that. Oh, yeah. Um, I love that you brought up park passes because I have like, <laughs> <laughs> I know I sent you a wall of text about this. <laughs> you know, you maybe have something to say about it. <laughs> So the government of Alberta recently announced that they're going to be implementing a new park fee for the Kananaskis Mountain Parks. And it's, I think, $15 for a day pass or $90 for an annual pass, but it's the annual pass is tied to your license plate. I do have complex feelings about this. Like in general, I think I'm in favor of it because I feel like Alberta Parks is very underfunded and usership has exploded in the past um, year with COVID and there being nothing else to do um, and just the population of Alberta growing in general. Not nearly enough resources um, just to do basic things like trail maintenance and emptying garbage cans. Um, if the funding from that, if the funds from that actually go to Alberta Parks, then I am all for it. Gonna have to watch if that's what the UCP actually does with that money. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> they did try to sell all the parks last year, didn't they? <laughs> they did try to sell them. And like some, yeah, they did just like, why would we have parks when we could have coal? Regular listeners of the show will know that most of our guests hate the government in Alberta. (laughs) Sometimes I just look at what that government does and I'm like, 
that is the cartoonishly evil thing you could have picked to do. Yeah, so my first, like my reaction when I heard about the Parks Pass was like, yeah, that's fine. Um, that's cool, assuming it does what it is meant to do. But it also introduces a new um, barrier to access for casual users or low-income people who wanted to go out to the park. So $15 a day is not the cheapest, especially most people don't go to the park mountains on their own, especially not casual, like infrequent users of the outdoors. So now you're adding on a significant cost. And with the annual pass being tied to a license plate, if you're somebody who would get a bunch of friends together and rent a car to go out, that's no longer an option. So now you're pay- if you bring, if there's your household of four, that's $60 for a day trip. And if you're camping, that's two days, you're, it's going to be $120 plus like your vehicle plus gas. Like it just introduces new costs that um, for if you can't afford to have an annual pass tied to your vehicle, the vehicle that you own, it does make it quite a bit more expensive and just administratively burdensome. I think that I, I heard somewhere that there was talk of um, like there being a tax rebate for lower income or for it being free. If you could demonstrate that you're of a like below uh, an income threshold, I'll be interested to see how that works. I think it's a good idea, but I can also see like if you have to, if you tell people, prove to me that you're poor, people are just going to not go outside. Well, and also like um, retroactively providing a tax rebate, like that doesn't actually help people because people who have um, like people in lower incomes usually have tighter budgets and like can't wait a year to get reimbursed a lot of cases. Yeah, exactly. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know what can like, um, what could people so I I know a lot of what we've talked about is like organizations and policies need to change. But is there anything you think individual people could do to make the outdoors more accessible to others? I think one of the things would help that would help is how we frame being an outdoors person. Like, I think when people think of an outdoors person, they think about someone who's like all kitted out in gear and like has all these arcane skills, like, I don't know, starting a fire with a flint and reading a map, like shooting a bearing with a compass and navigating with a map and that kind of thing. And I think it's one, one of those things that like is also a barrier just to everyday fitness is that when you think of fitness, you think of like, oh, I have to go to a special place with my special clothes and do these special activities instead of finding ways of integrating fitness and also the outdoors just into like an everyday lifestyle. So if people can frame like accessing the outdoors instead of like, I have to drive to a park and go on a trail and do a hike. And that is like, that is my Instagram outdoors experience. But like, how do you access and enjoy the outdoors within like the context of where you live and what makes sense for you? Like if you live in an urban environment, um, yeah, I mean, even just the Edmonton River Valley, it's one of the longest parks in North America or something, something Edmonton propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I live in Ottawa and the Ottawa River Trail is pretty nice as well. There's green space in cities too. Somebody that I like met briefly a long time ago, like in university, um, they had started a nonprofit I don't know if it's still running. I did not do any research. Um, (laughs) But they were also a phys ed major. And they had basically um, 
was very not sober one night. Okay. <laughs> and was lying on, like, lying on the lawn outside a place of residence. I don't know if it was their place of residence. And they just got really fixated on a blade of grass and, like, the infinite majesty of nature within this blade of grass. And out of out of that experience, they started a nonprofit to help children in urban settings, especially like underprivileged children in urban settings, to explore and appreciate the outdoors within a context of like a concrete jungle where there isn't a lot of like trees and like lakes and frolicking. That's amazing. So unexpectedly wholesome ending. Yeah, that's awesome. It actually what you were saying there, um, it got me thinking a little bit about um what I love about Vancouver so much, which is that they actually make it accessible to get to places where you can go hiking. Like you can take the bus to the Grouse Grind, for example, or to like Lynn Canyon, which like you can technically do in Toronto, but it's really hard. I don't know. Maybe there should be more of that. So Bianca, I'd already asked you about like what individuals can do to help make things more, uh, to help make the outdoors more accessible. Um, but on the other hand, what about somebody who's listening to this podcast um, and doesn't really have a lot of experience with the outdoors? Like, what would you say to them about getting started? I think that mentorship is just invaluable when you're actually no matter what stage you are, you're in, in like learning to appreciate the outdoors and spend time in the outdoors. Uh, mentorship has been a huge part of like how I've grown and like learn to love the outdoors and learn new skills and how to not be a dick and not get killed <laughs> outdoors. And there's definitely organizations that um that really cater to that. Like when I moved to Edmonton, I joined the Alpine Club um partly as a friend making strategy and partly to learn how to do things in mountain environments that I'd never been in before. And it was great experience, very successful in both of those fronts. Um, so would absolutely recommend the Edmonton chapter of the um, Alpine Club has these really great introduction courses where they kind of teach you some basic skills. Um, it's generally newbies um, who sign up for this. I signed up for it. Um, when I took it, it was like, I don't know, like 50 people. So I got to meet a lot of really nice people who also were like, hey, I'm interested in going outdoors, but I don't know anyone. Would you like to be my friend? while also getting a grounding in fundamental skills. Like they, there was like a course portion of it where they teach you things like how to camp. What, what do you need to bring? What should you wear? Um, what kind of food should you bring? How far away should your food be from your campsite? And I met some great people who are still like some of the friends that I go out with on a regular basis. So um, yeah, I would seek out an organization like that. If you can, the Alpine club is across Canada and um there's also an organization that I follow that is based out of Vancouver, but they're also active in Alberta and they're called Color the Trails. And their focus is on getting um, BIPOC people outdoors and like creating accessible, safe environments for people to start trying new things outdoors. They run like intro workshops. There's Facebook groups often for like women's only um, outdoor activities. So many good options. That's so amazing. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of opportunities for seeking out friends or like other like amateurs or seeking out mentors. I find that people are often very, very willing to mentor because 
if they're if they're passionate about an activity because they want to share that experience with other people and they want other people to be safe while they're doing it. Amazing. So um, we usually let guests uh, do a call to action if they want to. It's totally optional. You don't have to. But is there something you would want listeners to do? Go outside and yeah, enjoy the outs. Don't start a forest fire. Don't start a forest fire. <laughs> can can you just action? can you please just say really seriously for everybody? Uh, only you can prevent forest fires. Only you can prevent forest fires. I love Beautiful. it. Beautiful. <laughs> wow. Thank you for joining us, Bianca. We got so many great ideas for everybody heading into what we can hope is a really nice summer where you're allowed to go outside. <laughs> I'm getting my vaccine uh, in two weeks, so I will be... Oh, congratulations. Ooh, That's so exciting. I'll be allowed to go outside again. <laughs> Um, Kyla, before you close this out completely, I just want to make sure that we get the sheep and goats video in. <laughs> oh, yes. How could I forget? We will be playing out this episode with a clip from Parks Canada's infamous video. It's it's a thing you need to experience um, where they are trying to educate people about how when you see... What you think might be a goat um, in the parks, they're usually sheep, and all the differences between sheeps and goats. <laughs> yeah, it's something. Enjoy it's something. sheeps and goats. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> parks spend money on this. I just want to know the six levels of bureaucracy they had to pass this through via email before they filmed this video. <laughs> we will share this masterpiece on Twitter, so you can follow us at Pullback Podcast. Bianca, did you want anyone to follow you? No, I don't Twitter. That's fair. Me, me neither. That's why our Twitter account is so quiet. But Kristen's pretty good at it. <laughs> is there any, are there, is there an Instagram account that you would want people to follow? Not necessarily that's yours, but that you just like? Oh, yeah. Pullback Podcast. Ah! Oh, my gosh. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> mm, we need to start posting hey, better stuff, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought for sure it was going to be that um, guy that hikes in Canmore with his cat, uh, his account. But oh my I, god, that's an amazing account! Yes, follow that one. Although, like that cat is doing fine. Like that <laughs> cat has got sponsorships out the yin yang. Yeah, we need we need the help more. <laughs> <laughs> this cat is great. Grams of Gary. This cat does all sorts of epic shit. He goes skiing. He goes ski mountaineering. He paddle boards. Like this cat is living his best life. It's really quite something. Well, thank you for joining us, Bianca. This was a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) And to play us out, uh, enjoy this sheep and goat song, everyone. (laughs) Sheep and goats. Goats and sheep. We live where the mountains are steep. Goats and sheep. Sheep and goats Climbing high, we don't need your ropes Nope, nope You may see sheep upon the road Bringing traffic to a halt I really cannot help myself I'm down here licking salt My hair is often molting Eyes are gold and round My rump is white and so's my nose The rest of me is brown Goats are quite elusive Live at higher elevations And if you catch a glimpse of me It's cause for celebration My coat is long and thick and white And helps to keep me warm My hooves are black, my nose is black And black my eyes and horns Sheep and goats yeah. Goats and sheep We live where the mountains are steep Goats and sheep
Sheep and goats, climbing high, we don't need